Okay, uh, let's uh, begin tonight um, with the uh, sheet that uh, you should have. I think Carol handed out the one on the Faith Rest Drill worksheet. I'd like to start there tonight. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ that excludes all human merit and therefore is secure. And we thank you that the Holy Spirit has come to illuminate our hearts throughout the church age to the New Testament revelation concerning your Son, in whose name we, we pray and offer this thanks. Amen. Um, we're going, this kind of is going to be the finishing up of this faith rest drill that we've been going over and over um, <clears throat> evening after evening because as we finish Pentecost, we're going to conclude this spring, this uh, uh, in early summer, with um, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And that introduces us to some other things. So this is sort of a summation of the, of the faith rest drill approach. And I want to um, go through this tonight at the beginning, this outline, because it contains uh, some elements that are just really basic. Um, of course, the, the uh, first verse that I cite there, Colossians 2.6, um, sort of normalizes all sanctification and grounds all sanctification tools, if you will, put it that way, uh, as the same way as you trust in Christ for the gospel. So as you have received Christ, so also walk in him. There's no difference. So it's not some special thing that changes after we become a Christian. It's we walk as we became Christians by faith. Um, the other thing, on, again, we've gone through the three points that we've gone over, grabbing a, a fragment of scripture, working with it in our souls until we can get to the point of stage three where we can trust it. Um, a little thing that I've noticed in scripture and in, in my personal life and the life of other Christians is that it helps that when you reach out and grasp a scripture or a promise or some piece and chunk of revelation in the Bible, that you think of this not as something that's wholly contained in this book, but rather is the words of the God who is out there. And that's why I say, I've added this with a dose of revelation in nature. Um, if you look at Job 38, which we've done a number of times, you'll see dozens of questions where God goes after Job at a crisis point in his life, not by quoting one single verse of Scripture. Every one of those questions in Job 38 are questions about God's revelation in Job's environment. And I think it's interesting that that's how God works with us sometimes. Um, maybe he works that way because we are so familiar with scripture uh, we've kind of got callous to it and so it's sort of like a blunt knife that's not sharp anymore and so God has to try another approach and he'll work through circumstances or awareness of his revelation in our environment and uh, Job 38 is a very nice uh, chapter to read and reflect upon because of the it's a, it's a counseling approach and it's working with the issue of faith. And so it's interesting to try to ask, well, when God himself works through these problems with us on a one-on-one -on -one basis, how does he do it? 
He does it by drawing attention to himself as he really truly exists. Psalm 19, of course, is the great psalm that points to God's revelation in nature also. So remember that when you grab a scripture fragment, you're grabbing a fragment of the words of the God who is out there. Uh, And this makes it sometimes a little bit more real than just thinking of it as a text in the King James Version or the New ASV or something. Uh, Another thing to remember about this is that um, you can also refer to phenomena in nature. One of the ones I love, of course, uh, is, is the rainbow. And when I see a rainbow, I always think of the Noahic Covenant, because that's his signature. And ever since I realized that the rainbow, optically and physically, is designed as a mirror image, or as a, as a finite replica of the glory around the throne of God, that makes it much more real to me, that I'm actually viewing a, a projection in the sky from his throne. And that's what we're looking at every time we see a rainbow. So those kind of approaches help mentally in working and starting off this, this faith rest drill. So, okay, we, we, I've covered there, I've given eight verses that we've gone over and over and over in ensuing Thursday nights. Um, and now we come to the step two. And tonight I want to show something about step two that might make it a little bit more personal. Um, Before we go further in step two, you'll notice I put a little statement there in which I quote Matthew 8 and Matthew 17. And I think it also helps to think of the fact that, as Hebrews says, it is impossible to please God without faith. That faith is what pleases him. So, since Jesus Christ is God, and we can watch his response to faith or lack of faith, I want to take us to those two passages, because they illustrate, if if we can look at Jesus' response, and Jesus is God incarnate, then by looking at Jesus' response, we ought to be able to look at God's response. So, if you turn to Matthew 8, 5, we could cite several, several illustrations in the Gospels, but I thought we'll pull two out of Matthew. And you'll notice that what we say is what we're trusting here, uh, and I borrowed this from Joe Carroll in the Evangelical Institute uh, in Greenville, South Carolina, uh, who, who makes a point of this in his prayer letters, if you've ever seen them, is that what we're trusting is, is in the trustworthiness of God. Now, that's a clever little statement, because if you look at the noun, trustworthy, it means that if we don't trust, we're demeaning his character. So, lack of faith is not just a psychological thing. Lack of faith is not just a passive thing. It's actually an insult. It's a positive insult to God's trustworthiness. If he is trustworthy and we don't deem him trustworthy, then that's insulting his character. And when, conversely, when if he is trustworthy and we trust him, that pleases him. So, in Matthew 8, I've always been intrigued with this illustration. If you follow with me, it's the story of the centurion, but I want you to notice how it ends. There's a little, little notice in the text. Remember, centurion, background, Roman, 
trained in the Roman army, uh, trained in a, in a structure that's very authoritative, and he has the concept of authority. And so when he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and said, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. And he, Jesus, said to the centurion, I'll come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. You just say the word, my servant will be healed. For I too... Now, look at the guy's thinking here. Look at the guy's thinking. For I too am a man under authority. So right away you can tell he's recognized if he's saying that Jesus is under authority, then that implies that he, he's already cognizant of the deity of Christ. And nobody else is over Jesus. Who else is over Jesus? So it, there's a lot to be said for what the centurion has thought through before he opened his mouth here. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to say the word, for I too am a man of authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, look at the response. If Jesus is God incarnate, then God himself can marvel. He, God himself can respond to trust. When Jesus heard this, he marveled, and he said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And then he goes on to predict the uh, incoming of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. Now what did this guy do that so excited and, and the, made this... This is a rather stupendous statement there in verse 10, isn't it? That he says, I've never found more faith than anyone else in Israel. And he's talking to a Gentile. So what has this guy got on to that the Jews evidently hadn't got on to? And you'll notice that verse 8 and 9, the guy's not singing. He's not coming up with some sort of religious goo. He just has a basic idea. And the basic idea is that the Word of God is absolutely authoritative. And that's what excites God. And so, again, if Jesus is God incarnate, then the verb in verse 10, marveled, is what God must do when we trust in Him, when we take something by faith. It pleases Him, Hebrews 11:6. He marvels at it when we trust Him. So, that's kind of a neat way of thinking about the faith rest drill, as it's not just a drill, it's not a psychological technique, it's... It's a fundamental in a relationship with God himself. Now, conversely, let's turn to Matthew 17. Here's the other side of the coin. You always learn by contrast. Not only do we learn what the truth is, we learn what the truth isn't. And here's a case where Jesus responds to a lack of faith. And again, if Jesus is incarnate, then logic would say this is a this is a revelation of God's own heart. In verse 14 of Matthew 17, it says, When they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he's a lunatic and he's very ill. He falls into the fire and off into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't cure him. And Jesus said, now verse 17 is not a not nice response. So here's Jesus now responding to the lack of faith of his disciples. 
O unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Does it sound like God is a little frustrated? If Jesus Christ is God, then this is a revelation of his frustration. So it goes back to what Joe Carroll said. If you either trust the trustworthiness of God and we please him, or we don't trust his trustworthiness, in which way we're insulting him. And either way, there's a response on his part to what our response is. And sometimes we have a very Greek, intellectual, abstract idea that creeps into our thinking about God as this sort of emotionless being. It has about as much emotion as a cray computer. And that's not true. God interacts and he has what corresponds to our emotions. He has what corresponds to what we call feelings. I mean, look at the verbs of action that God does here. So I wanted you to see that to guard and protect you against visualizing this faith rest drill as just a technique. It's not just a technique. It's, I said a drill because it's something we should go through and respond to. Okay, we're on step two then of the, of the process. And I have suggested five different things from the framework. Now you could pick out a whole bunch of other things. All I'm trying to show there is that when you get into this, when you, when you finally hit a scripture, or you finally think about something and you, you halt long enough in your soul to sort of uh, meditate and get together, then it helps to bring up some of the things we've learned in the framework. Because when we've learned these things in the framework over the years, we've always tried to learn in terms of an antithesis. What is the truth and what isn't the truth? So if you look at each of those five rows in that table, let me go through those and show the point. Go back to creation. How do you do that? Visualize it. You, you, not just the word creation, but in your mind's eye, with your own imagination, put yourself as an eyewitness to Genesis 1. And just think about the words of God. Imagine you're looking at the universe being created. And just think about what it must have looked like when, for him to say that in the middle of all the billions and billions of atoms and molecules that now exist, because they, they haven't been destroyed, so every molecule out there was there, or the atom structures were there, atomic structures, in Genesis 1.1. So after he created the heavens and the earth, and all was without form and void, and he suddenly speaks, and there's light, and there's day and night before their planets, and there's day and night before their sun, meaning that the whole universe is pulsing on what we call a 24-hour cycle, independently of the stars and the Earth. 24-hour day is not due to the rotation of the Earth around the Sun. Biblically, the 24-hour day is due to the fundamental time unit of Genesis 1, three days before there ever was a Sun. So, in this, God sets off the day-night cycle. And this is the beat of the universe. And that's why we believe that there are passages in the Bible give us this day, our daily bread. Take up daily your cross. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. 
The Bible measures as the fundamental unit of time, not the second, not the minute. It measures the fundamental unit of time as, as the day. And that is an absolute measurement that pertains to the entire universe. And the proof is that it pre-existed planets. It pre-existed astronomical motion. So, visualize being there and seeing the Word of God. Just He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. I mean, what a powerful, imaginative picture of the Word of God. So that's, that's how you can absorb that creation idea and start playing with it in your mind and let it run all through the nooks and crannies of your soul. Well then, what doctrines have we associated with that? Well, we associate a whole bunch of doctrines with it. We don't have to go into those now, but you know you can recall all kinds of stuff in the chart. Of course, we talked about God, man, and nature, but in this little chart here, all I've done is take off one little piece of the doctrine of God, and I said, God and his revealed attributes versus imagined qualities. And I put in italics what truth isn't. So there's a complete antithesis on the right side of that chart. The only option you have to a God with attributes, like, our biblical, like the biblical God, is qualities like love, truth, that are just imaginations. They're just imaginative constructions out of the human mind of speculation if they're not grounded in his attributes. I was talking to uh, David Muchmore, the missionary, when he was uh, at our house a few weeks ago, and he was narrating uh, what happened when he was in Dallas Seminary. It was the last year of the uh, career of Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, who for many years taught New Testament at Dallas Seminary. And, of course, over the years, as the culture has gotten further and further away from the gospel, kids come to the seminary campus, and they you know, really are far out as far as what used to come to the campus 20 or 30, 40 years ago. And so S. Lewis Johnson was teaching a course in New Testament theology and something on the attributes of God. Well, he was halfway through the lecture, and the student raised their hand and said, Dr. Johnson... Will you please tell me what the attributes of God have to do with my personal life? And he says, Johnson just about fainted. That anybody could be so stupid that they're in Dallas Seminary and they don't know what the attributes of God have to do with their personal life? You know, I mean, do we talk about uh, truth, love, justice? Is this personally relevant to you or not? Well, if they are relevant to you, then the attributes of God have to be relevant to you, or you've got an idolatrous, speculative, and phony reconstruction of those attributes. So you either got the real thing, or you've got a surrogate. You've got the God of the Bible, or you've got an idolatrous replacement. But you've got one or the other, because you can't talk about truth, love, justice, uh, knowledge, and any of the other things that correspond to God's attributes without relying on God's attributes or rebelling against him and replacing in a rebellious fashion those attributes with your own little constructions. That's what the attributes of God have to do. Well then, we've talked about the fall. So in your mind's eye, what would you do? Play the tape. See, this is why reading the scripture is so valuable. Don't ever demean reading the Bible, even if it's only for a couple of minutes. I mean, look what we learned from a three-minute commercial on television. 
they, they stick in your mind. Well, three or four minutes in the Word of God can stick in your mind. So read the Bible and then replay the tape. So when you can think through, okay, suffering situation, okay, big mess, okay, where does the framework tell you this started? The fall. So then visualize the situation. Visualize Adam and Eve and you're the video cameraman and you're taking a picture of this whole thing and you're running the drama back through your mind's eye and you visualize them hiding and God's cursing the ground, God cursing the serpent and now they're going to start dying. Right away, their whole physiology, right away their whole anatomy starts to change because now the human body has death working in it. And we share that. You know, DNA, this DNA comes from Adam and Eve. It's dying. Your DNA is dying. It's all corrupted. So, the fall. And on the right side of the graph, you think, okay, now I've run the tape in my mind. What does it tell me? Well, it tells you that evil began at a point in time. And it's going to be ended at a point in time in the sense that God is going to just uh, judge it. And he's going to separate it and eternally partition good from evil forever and ever and ever. And that's relief. So evil is not some process that's out of control. It wasn't there, and then suddenly it came into existence at creature rebellion. So no matter how horrible, whatever you read in the newspaper, whatever you personally witness, uh, I was talking to someone who came back from South Africa, and they were saying that while they were there, I was on a, at a conference the other week, and uh, this man's wife was in Habitat for Humanity, and they were in South Africa for a while. I guess he went with her. Uh, and um, he says, I never saw so many dead people in my life. And he said, I drove along the road, and there was a big bus rack, and they just left the bodies inside of the road, spilled all over the place, blood all over the place. Just drive on by South Africa. And a uh, big riot and uh, people getting shooting at each other and they leave them in the streets. Go on. Corpses all over the place. I never saw so many corpses in my life. So, that's shocking. That's the kind of messy situation people run into. Hospital. Messy situation. So, all these situations that we encounter de remind us of death. Well, instead of freaking out about it and saying, oh God, how could he let a horrible thing and slide right into the accusation now. It's not our fault. It's God's fault. Let's wait a minute. Hold it. What's the event that defines and controls this issue? The fall. And what do we know about the fall? Start and end. Boom. See, that's subduing. That's using the Word of God to subdue a situation. And then to think about the alternative, again, in italics. What are you going to do if you don't do this? Okay, I don't want to believe the Word of God. Okay, then where does that leave me? Only one place. Now I've got imagine. Notice I've always indicated imagine, because that's not the truth. The lie is not the truth. It's an imagination. It's a vain imagination. So you can circle, imagine, 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 imagine every one of those things on the right side because that's the verb. It's just an imagine. It's a vain imagination. And the vain imagination is that the good-evil mixture will go on and on and on forever. You really think that? Well, then you've got a problem. A real one. Because you're never going to escape it. Okay, then we could come to a covenant. Noahic covenant, the rainbow. 
Maybe you're outdoors this spring. You see the rainbow. And say, okay, that reminds me of God's covenant. What does that mean? That God has a contract. What is a contract? Contract is with nature. Now, it wasn't Al Gore that thought up ecology. God created the Noahic covenant a number of years before Al Gore arrived on the scene. And in constructing this covenant, he not only controls the terrestrial environment, what else does he control in order to execute the promise? He has to control the whole universe. Because if he doesn't control the whole universe, you could have an asteroid or something else come by the Earth and create a tidal wave that would inundate the Earth. So, in order to protect the planet from any, any problem with a Noahic covenant, he's got to also control the external environment around the Earth but to control that environment, he has to control the celestial environment around the solar system, and in order that, and so forth and so on, it's an infinite regression. If he doesn't control all, he can't control any. So the fact that God can make a statement of what he can and cannot do in the terrestrial environment implies that he has total control of the entire universe throughout all history. So we have a geophysical contract. So what does that mean? It means in spite of all the scientific theories and everything else, everything is under his administration. Versus imagined uniformity and chance. And that's the only alternative you got. Try to think in terms of basic alternatives and you won't be thrown by the tides of life. Fortunately for us, finite creatures, there's only two or three answers to every big question. There's not 57 varieties here. We're not talking about infinite number of questions that you'd spend your whole lifetime thinking about. There's only two or three answers to every basic question. And there are only five or six basic questions. So it's a very small plate for all this stuff. It's just we don't think about it much. Too busy thinking about useless details. Okay, the next group is a cluster. And this is how you can also work with a framework, by clustering like events. Now, what I've done there in the cluster is I've clustered the flood, the exodus, the death of Christ, and the session of Christ. Now, why did I cluster those particular four things? Because they all have to do with God's judgment and the act of saving. And any one of those four can be visualized. Session of Christ may be hard. That's more demanding on, on our imaginations because nobody's ever seen the Session of Christ other than the Apostle Paul and a few, Stephen and a few others who have seen him on the throne. Most of us have never seen that. So we have to kind of, in our mind's eye, generate the imagery out of Scripture. So what do we have here? We have a revelation of God's saving work or... The only alternative to God's saving work is what I put there in the italics. What did I put in the italics? The imagined self-help human good scheme. That's the only option you got. See? You can go to the fence and really see if the grass is greener on the other side. That's what this whole exercise is about. Is it really greener? And then, of course, the conquest and settlement... You can think about that in terms of an either-or. Either the sanctifying program of God in your life, or the life's purposeless. It's going nowhere with no background, no drive, no direction. And the diagram that I've put there is to show the old amoeba thing of surrounding whatever the crisis, trial, or circumstances is with the plan of God, and the purpose, and the Word of God. And you've got to 
sometimes it's easy to do, and sometimes it's not easy to do, and sometimes it takes a long time to go through step two. Step two can vary from a split second to days of working with this, or weeks, sometimes months in certain areas of getting a handle. And by getting a handle, the reason I like that diagram that I have there is that it shows you it's just putting it in the squeeze where you're cutting off any option other than the Word of God to deal with that situation. There are no other answers than that which is given by the Word of God. And I believe that if you concentrate on that, you will find it very easy to trust God. But the times and the places where it's, you have difficulty and I have difficulty trusting God, we really haven't encircled it. That's the problem. It's loose. And it's trying to encircle us. And it's, it's a little game that's being played there. And it all occurs up here in the head. And we all know that's the battleground of the Christian life. It's not in Congress. The battleground of the Christian life is in our heart. And that's, this is the stuff that goes on there. And finally, we get down to the faith rest, and we, we, we get down to the summary. Either we have confidence that what he has promised, he is able also to perform, or we've sucked up some vanity out of the world system. One or the other. Okay. Well, tonight we're going to get back to Pentecost and Joel chapter 2. So if you'll turn to Joel chapter 2 once again in the Old Testament... Go to the halfway point, Psalms and so on in the Bible, and then come forward toward the New Testament a few books, and you'll see Joel in Joel chapter 2. And we're going to look at the end of Joel. Verse 28. We want to look at Joel and pretend for just a moment that you've taken a time machine and you've gone back into the 7th and 8th centuries before Christ. You are now living in Palestine and you're listening to Joel the prophet. So we're all now thinking of ourselves as the recipients of this text. We're thinking of ourselves as Jews living in that age of the declining kingdom, faced with a national judgment, faced with prophets who are saying we are going to get creamed, that our nation is going down the tubes and is under the hand of God and we are shortly going to experience discipline. But, these prophets are saying, what are they going to say? If there's evil in history, is evil bounded or is it loose? Bounded. So the prophets, while they proclaim God is going to cream the nation, he's not going to do it eternally. There is hope that finally the problem will be resolved. So there's always hope in the cursings. The cursings go to a point and then they promise salvation. So in Job, Joel chapter 2, verse 28, here he's talking about afterward. It will come out after this. In other words, after all the destruction, after all the evil, after all the heartache, 
It will come after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all men, all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So you see at the end of the text, we're talking about the survivors, the remnant. And it's arguing that the great day of the Lord will come and there will be survivors of this whole process that will enter the kingdom of God. So that's the end of this passage. Now, verses 28 and 29 talk about a phenomena prior to the great day of the Lord God. And that phenomena is a pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh. And in context, how is all flesh explained? It's explained as sons, daughters, old men, young men, male and female servants. That's what all flesh means. So what is that saying? There are no class distinctions in this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And this is a powerful thing right back here, you see. And this is where some of these liberal bullies that are in college classrooms like to pick on Christian kids in class and they get a big thrill out of seeing how many kids' faith they can destroy using taxpayer finance dollars because they can't get jobs anywhere else so they have to go to college campus and get on tuition, get on the tenure. We have these people who are saying that the Old Testament is patriarchal, anti-feminine. Well, now what do you make of this passage then? In the end of history, where is history moving? It's moving to the point where the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on what? Just the patriarchs? Or is it going to be poured out on all flesh in every area? I mean, come on, people. Read this thing. I mean, this is English. It's not Hebrew. Anybody can read this. All you have to do is open the book. Verses 30, 31 are talking about geophysical phenomena. And it's talking about horrible things. And it's demonstrating the fact that God is in control of history. Okay, now let's go to Acts 2. So here Peter is. He's right there within minutes of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost, manifest by the noise, by the tongues of fire, and by supernatural languages, and I hope there's nobody here that doubts that in Acts 2, this is not some little, 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 little kind of language. This is actual human language that was understood. Had dictionaries, lexicons. These were languages that were really spoken, and not so-called unknown tongues. It's, it's known languages, just unknown to the people who are speaking it. But the people that heard it, it wasn't unknown, or they wouldn't have recognized it was in their own dialect, with their own accents. But verse 14, Peter now picks up Joel 2. And people think that what he's saying here is that Pentecost totally fulfills all those things we just read about in Joel. Now, if 
Pentecost really totally fulfills everything in Joel 2. What do we do about how we interpret the geophysical events? Are there any geophysical sun turning dark here? Is the moon turning red? Is there smoke and fire all over the place? I don't see any. That wasn't there in the time of Pentecost. So therefore, if this fulfills Joel 2, it logically follows that you have to change your literal interpretation into an allegorical interpretation and say that the Joel passage has to be understood allegorically. Well, we don't believe that approach works. It may appear to work here and there. But let's go on. And we said last time, verse 17 and 18, Peter quotes that first section about the pouring out of the Spirit. Then he adds, and in your Bibles, some of the translations have it, the text of that Old Testament quote so set off so you can see what's part of the quote and part what isn't. And that last clause in verse 18, and they shall prophesy, is not part of the Joel passage. That, and they shall prophesy, is Peter's comment on the Joel passage and shows you what's going through his mind. The thing he wants us to get out of that Joel passage is that what happened on Pentecost with the Holy Spirit coming upon the guys, whether they were high priests or not high priests, they were mostly Galilean laymen, we would call them, and they were all having this strange ability to speak in tongues, to prophesy, that is, to preach the things of the works of God. So that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, Joel spoke of this kind of thing happening. Then it says, I will grant wonders in the sky, blood, fire, vapor, smoke. So he quotes that again, second part of the Joel passage. And in verse 22, he explains to us what's going on in his mind when he quotes those passages. He says, because of the word signs and wonders, Jesus of Na Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. See, it's, it's not a subjective opinion. It was public. It wasn't private. It was public revelation. This man, so forth and so on, God raised him up again, etc., etc. So, clearly, Peter is talking about two things from this Joel passage. One, he is drawing our attention to the preaching and prophesying in miraculously known human languages. And he associates that phenomena of speaking in tongues or speaking in languages with the Joel passage. So let's diagram the logic of what he's doing. He's saying that the Old Testament forecast, predicted this pouring out of the Spirit. Pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And one of the evidences of that was prophesying. Now what he says is that clearly the prophesying has happened. So, he's linking this with Pentecost, with the tongues, or the known languages. And that was a miracle. But he does more than that, as we said last time, because when you go back down to verse 33, he qualifies the source of the languages as being 
sent by whom? In verse 33. Who is the real driving subject in verse 33? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is... Uh, he has poured forth this, which you see and hear. Who's the subject of the verb pour? It's the Lord Jesus. Well, what he's saying then is... We, we, the thrust in Acts 2 and Pentecost is often made over the signs, the wonders, and the tongues. But if you look at the logic of what Peter's doing, what he's really showing is that Jesus Christ is Jehovah. In other words, this pouring out of the Spirit, it was God caused it. So when you see the known languages, and he deduces that it was the Lord Jesus Christ who poured out the Spirit, then it makes the Lord Jesus Christ equal to God. And so he's saying, this is what was prophesied by Joel, that God is going to pour out the Spirit, and He has. And the medium of doing this is the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the whole point of the logic is to focus on the person of Jesus Christ and who He is. He's not just a man. He went into heaven at the ascension and session, sat down, he says in verse 33, at the right hand of God, and from there he received the promise. Now, why does he use the word promise? Because Jesus Christ said, after, you know, I, I leave you, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you, John 14. So he received the promise and he poured it forth, which you both see and hear. What did they see and hear? The known languages. So there was an empirical observed audio and video type detection of a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Okay. The second thing that he does in verses 19 and 20, he points out the miracles. And we said in verse 22, the miracles are those which Jesus Christ did. Did Jesus Christ turn the moon into blood? No. Did Jesus Christ have blood, fire, and vapor of smoke? Not that we know of. It's not reported in the New Testament. Well, then why does he link verses 19 and 20 to verse 22 that way? Because the Lord Jesus Christ showed that he had dominion over nature. What did he do in the Sea of Galilee when he stopped the storm? What did he do every time he healed a sick body? Is that dominion over the physical universe? Of course it is. Is it on the scale and grandeur? of those astronomical predictions of Joel? No. But the point is, you can argue from the lesser to the greater that the Lord Jesus had control over these lesser manifestations. And that alone shows you that he will eventually have control over the larger manifestations. Because if you can heal bodies, and if you can stop storms in the Sea of Galilee, then you can do the rest of them okay. So he's not emphasizing the details of the miracles so much as he's saying, again, Old Testament says, before the day of the Lord, there will be these miracles. And we'll call them miracles G, that is, miracles of the geophysical nature. But he says, the Lord Jesus Christ did miracles, and we'll just call them the smaller ones. But the emphasis isn't on the difference in miracles. The emphasis is that the Lord Jesus Christ did them. And because the Lord Jesus Christ did them, that makes him God again. So again, the identity and the stress is on the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ 
is God. He does the works of God. And from now on, Israel has to take this very, very seriously. That they crucified the incarnate God. You see why they got convicted of their sin? You talk about rebellion against God. I mean, if Jesus Christ is really God and they tried to kill him, what does this show about sin? That when God visits the planet, he gets crucified? Isn't that a glorious testimony to the inhabitants of planet Earth? Imagine if you did have councils like Star Wars. You know, all the rest of the planets are saying, you did what? And that's the force of Peter's, Peter's dialogue. Okay. Of course, since the resurrection gets in there, and we pointed out the resurrection. So on page 33 of your notes, I've tried to diagram the, the logic of what Peter's doing here. And then we want to conclude by going to Acts 3 to show you, uh, the, furthermore, how Peter's interpreting this uh, in the light of the... Uh, of Pentecost, what he's, what he's doing with the Pentecost phenomena. On page 33 of the notes, if you look at the paragraph that begins, what then is Peter's interpretation of Pentecost? Right there, just stop. Why am I talking about Peter's interpretation of Pentecost? Okay, turn to page 35 and you'll see. Who's the next guy we're going to talk about? On page 35, the capital heading that separates the next section is called Luke's and Paul's Interpretation. Okay? Page 35. Luke's and Paul's Interpretation. So quite clearly, I'm trying to show there's a difference here that you have to come to grips with when you read the New Testament. Something's going on in the book of Acts. So, let's go back now to page 33. What is Peter's interpretation of Pentecost? Okay, there's three points in that paragraph. Notice what they are. The Old Testament foretold a new work of the Holy Spirit prior... Notice the word... not worried about being in the kingdom. They're still not yet in the kingdom. It has not yet come. The Old Testament foretold a new work of the Holy Spirit prior to the kingdom. Remember Joel said after these things, before the great day of the Lord? Which included new revelation coming through many different Jews and miraculous disturbances in the natural environment. Second point, the Old Testament foretold that the Davidic Messiah would not succumb to death. Third point, Jesus foretold his ascent into heaven and dispatching the Spirit to earth. Remember, that was the upper room discourse in the Gospels. Okay. The logic then refers to actual historic events. And I left out a point here, so if you'll write this point in. First point is okay. Jesus performed miracles that disturbed some parts of man's natural environment, in most cases the natural environment of his body. Second point that you should add that's not in the notes is Jesus rose from the dead. Third point, new revelation was given through miraculous language on Pentecost. 
goes. That's what happened historically. So everything in this paragraph, these three points, those are the last events we've studied in Christ's life. His resurrection, his ascension and session, and Pentecost. Those three events. Okay. So the first cluster of three is what the Old Testament predicted. The second cluster of three is what historically occurred. And next, we have two points where Peter ties the two clusters together and draws conclusions. He says, the Old Testament said this, history shows you this, and here is the end of the matter. The logic deduces that Jesus Christ must be the king of the coming kingdom because as should be as resurrected, ascended, and seated Messiah. He now stands in the role of whom? By substituting the Lord Jesus Christ's role into the role of Yahweh in the Old Testament, he's shown... Jehovah's Witness here in the true sense of the word. The resurrected ascension seated Messiah, he now stands in the role of Jehovah in sending the Holy Spirit to believing Jews. Secondly, as incarnate God, he performed miracles of enough magnitude to qualify as the one who will one day perform the specifically prophesied miracles in the Joel passage which bring in the pre-kingdom judgments. It's not that these are the pre-kingdom. Why, by the way, let's, let's back up one step. Why is it that the, the, the miracles that Jesus did did not yet amplify into the great signs and wonders? What cut Jesus off? It was the rejection. Halfway through each gospel, what happened? The multitude un, did not believe. So, the answer is, well, why didn't Jesus do the big miracles? Well, why didn't the people believe? He's not going to do miracles because what did he say? To this generation, there will be no sign given it except what? The sign given to Jonah, which is the resurrection. He says, I don't give you any more signs. You haven't believed the signs you got. Why should I give you any more? So the, the amplification of all these signs is truncated by the rejection of Jesus Christ nationally. Now, we go to Acts 3, just to show you more of the flavor of the book of Acts. This is why you cannot come in, driving in to the book of Acts at 45 miles an hour and read it and think you're going to go back to the New Testament church here. There's a lot of stuff in the book of Acts. Very complicated book. Remember, I diagrammed the book of Acts this way. The role of the kingdom is very strong in early Acts. The role of the kingdom declines as you go through the book of Acts. In the beginning of Acts, the role of the church is hardly seen. As you get to the end of the book of Acts, it's entirely the church. The book of Acts is a dispensational transition from Israel to the church. And that's why, unless you're a dispensationalist, you can't detect what's going on here. If you don't distinguish between the church and Israel, you'll never understand the book of Acts. So, in the book of Acts now, in Acts chapter 3, something else happens that shows you this problem of this book. It talks about Peter and John they go into the incident with verse 5 and 6 with the beggar. 
And then he begins to leap and walk and all the people see him and so forth. And then Peter, verse 12, starts another sermon. And he says, Men of Israel, why are you marveling at this? Why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? By the way, that's a neat confession of humility. See how he draws attention to Jesus Christ? Hey, look, forget it. Don't worry about me. I didn't do this by myself. This is the work of God. So immediately the humility of this guy, he's out there in front of a crowd, he's preaching in a strong voice, but he has mental attitude humility because he draws attention not to himself, but draws attention to the source of the miracle, which is God. And he goes on, verse 13, he goes back to what? What what is he really getting back to? Whenever you see God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what event should you think of? The call of Abraham and what covenant? Abrahamic covenant. See? The Bible is always covenantal. So he goes back to this Old Testament covenant and he talks about the promised Jesus. He says, You disowned the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you and put, but put to death the prince of life. Now, this is pretty harsh language. You just imagine you, you listening to this and imagine Peter sticking it right in your face. How would you like this? I don't think I'd like it. I mean, this is pretty convicting stuff. He's very, very blunt here in verse 14. You disown the right one. You asked a murderer to be granted to you. You put to death the prince of life, who God raised from the dead. So you didn't win that one either. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is in the name of Jesus that has strengthened this man whom you see him now. And the faith which comes through him has given, given him perfect health in the presence of all. Now, I know you acted in ignorance, as your rulers did also. You know, you're stupid, but you had stupid leaders. The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets. Now what is he quoting? Old Testament. See? The, the, it's all heavy, heavy, heavy into the Old Testament. That his Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent and return that your sins may be wiped away. In order that... Now watch the language in verse 19. In order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may do what to Jesus? Send him. Second advent. Right here you begin to see the first and second advents distinguished and developed. Going to send him. Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. That's the kingdom of God of the Old Testament, like Joel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, all those guys. Okay. Now, verse 25, it is you who are the sons of the prophets of the covenant which God made with you, saying to Abraham, see, covenant... For you first, God raised up a servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now this is an invitation. It is an invitation to the men of Israel. No Gentiles are in here. This is a Jew-Jew business. This is a Jewish apostle, Peter, talking to a Jewish audience who has crucified a Jewish Messiah because of a Jewish covenant. No Gentiles involved. This is all Jewish. It is all kingdom. The church is not here. There's no talk about union with Christ. There's no talk about the Christ life. There's no talk about our position in Christ or any of that. It's all Jewish 
Israel, and kingdom. Well, let's conclude tonight by turning to a parable that predicted this was going to happen. Matthew 22. And on your notes, on page 34, I draw attention to the guy who pointed this out years ago, uh, Alva McLean. Look at this, the seven verses in Matthew 22. Look at the details. And then we're going to look at Alvin McLean's quote. And then we'll be done for the night. Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven, same Old Testament kingdom, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. And again, notice again, he sent out other slaves saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my ox, my fatted lifestyle, all butchered, everything's ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid him no attention. They went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their what on fire? Their city on fire. Now, isn't this an interesting thing? Look now at what McLean pointed out years ago about this, these seven verses. Page 34 of the notes. It's certainly a reference to our Lord's finished work of redemption at Calvary. Such a call could not have gone out until after the resurrection. But again, the call is rejected. Now just stop there and go back to Matthew 22, verse 2 and 3. Look at verse 22 and 23 again. Uh, verse 2 and 3, I mean, in Matthew 22. The king gave a wedding feast for his son. The feast there is a picture of the kingdom to come. Everything's waited for the party to begin. So it's an invitation to party. And in verse 3, he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited. Now, who are those who had been invited? Jews or Gentiles? In this, it's the Jews. He sent to those who had been invited, all through the Old Testament, the Jews were invited, 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 invited to the kingdom, to the kingdom, to the kingdom. He sent his slaves out to call those who had been invited to the feast, and they were unwilling to come. That's the Gospels. Now, if you'll notice a difference in verse 4. Now he sends other slaves. So it's a different group of people saying, tell those who have been invited. So it's the same audience. Behold, I have prepared my dinner, my ox, and so on. But notice in verse 5, and contrast verse 5 to the last clause in verse 3. The first invitation goes out, and what's the response? They're unwilling to come. The second invitation comes out, and what happens then in verse 6? They begin to kill the slaves who are doing the inviting. Do you see any killing in verse 3? No killing. The first invitation is simply a negative volition. It's rejection. The second invitation is followed by murder and physical persecution. Now let's go to, verse, uh, go to page 34 and see what McLean points out here. 
The call is rejected, this time by actions which would help identify it in biblical history. Some Jews would turn away with contemptuous indifference, according to the parable, while others would mistreat and kill the messengers. This points to the post-Pentecostal offer as described in the book of Acts when officials of Israel did exactly that. During the Gospel period, notice this, during the Gospel period, not an official disciple of Christ was ever killed by the Jews. But during the period of Acts, terrible persecution and killing of the messengers began. began. There is no third call. Only two invitations. And then the judgment falls. The king sends forth his armies, destroys the murderers, and burns their city. A parabolic prediction of the awful destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So then, what's the second invitation? Acts. Early Acts is when the apostles once again turn to Israel after they've crucified Christ and they say, if you will turn again, the times of refreshing will come to you. So just as the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist asked the Jews to accept Messiah and the kingdom could come, so in the early pages of the books of Acts, there's a hypothetical possibility that the kingdom still could come then. There would have been no church age. Why? Because there's a genuine invitation. It's a genuine offer to the Jews who had rejected Jesus Christ. And it can't be a genuine offer unless there's a genuine opportunity for the kingdom to have come. So, as far as Peter knows, by the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4 of Acts, as far as he knows, the kingdom was still as imminent in his day as it was in John the Baptist and Jesus' day. I mean, after all, there's only a year or two difference here, so we're not talking big time. So this is the way you have to look at the early Acts. It is not focused on the church. It is not church-age evangelism here. This is an invitation as Jewish as anything in the Gospels. So what we're going to do then is next time we're going to go in later in the book of Acts, page 35 of the notes, and we're going to begin to see that things start changing. As Israel has rejected that second invitation, as Israel and the nation is headed toward the disaster of A.D. 70, there now begins to emerge awareness that something else happened on Pentecost. And that something else is what involves us. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for Pentecost, that he came to this planet in the most glorious way, producing a new work that has never before been seen in human history. And may you deepen our appreciation for the age in which we live and the dispensational work of the Holy Spirit in our time. For we ask it through our Savior's name. Amen. Uh, we'll have a few minutes here. Debbie, our starter, is not here, so we don't have a pump primer. And uh, George Bachman isn't here, so we don't have number two pump primer. So, Dave.
that their studies are basically to the Old Testament and they refuse that, you know, they even, uh, are, they, are they controlled almost like a Catholic religion where they can't explore that, you Yes. Uh, well, uh, that was a good question. The question is, uh, how come we have so many of, of the Jews today that don't recognize uh, the Messiah? And um, Paul's answer in Romans uh, 9, 10, 11 is that blindness has come upon Israel. And He's getting that idea, by the way. He didn't invent that. That's not new with Paul. He, get, he got that out of the Old Testament. And a guy did his thesis many years ago at Dallas on Isaiah 6. And uh, I've always been intrigued with his point. You know, Isaiah 6, usually people get in there, and it's true. That's the great uh, image when Isaiah is transformed and he sees God and, and he looks upon him. And that's where we get our hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. I think one of the greatest hymns of the church. And um, he, uh, and he, so he sees the glory of God, and, and people uh, look upon that as a great missionary thing. I send you out, you know. But he points out that if you look carefully in that that passage of Isaiah, you'll see that his 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 calling is to blind Israel. And you, and what the? Well, why is God blinding Israel with this? How do you blind somebody? You know, there's ways of blinding people, and one of the ways is to shine a bright light in their eyes. Um, one of the bad things about night vision goggles is that if you have a flash bang, you can really immobilize somebody that's sitting there looking at night with night vision goggles. And the point is that um, it appears that God's method, when people reject is to turn up the light for a while until it really blinds him. Um, he did this with Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh rejected the miracles that Moses gave him, so what did God do? He gave him some more miracles. And the Bible describes that as a process of deliberately hardening Pharaoh's heart. And so God has that. I mean, it's, it's not to say, ho, 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 you know, we believe, and they didn't. It's, it's really to be prayerfully concerned because he can, he can do that to anyone. Uh, if you don't respond to the light you got, uh, the light you have is taken from you. And it can be done in a number of ways. It can disappear or it can amplify to the point where you're blind. And apparently something like that has happened to the Jewish nation. However, to put it in perspective, I have a Hebrew Christian friend, Arnold Frutenbaum, who is, knows, never gets tired of pointing out that percent-wise, and if you work on a piece of paper with pencil and you put the number of Jews who have believed in the Messiah who are living today and in the denominator of the fraction you put the total number of Jews that are living you get a percent I forget what it is and if you compare that with another fraction in the numerator you put the number of Christians total on the earth's surface and in the denominator you put the total earth's population you'll see that they're not much different. So ironically, the percent of Jews believing is about the same as the percent of Gentiles believing. 
It's just that we don't see that because here in the West, there's more Gentiles kind of that are into Christian things. But if you think about it, look at the China. You know, quite a few people live in China. They make quite a few United States. Um, and they're all Confucianists, most of them. There's a, there's a church in China, yes, and it's a vibrant church, and it's a persecuted church, and they're sort of hanging on, humanly speaking, by their fingernails, but it's growing. And so you have the Chinese church, small. You have the Russian church, very small. Um, you could count the Christians in North Africa probably on two hands. Um, so when you think in terms of percent of belief, it's not that much. It's not that off. Not that much off. Now, as far as how they justify that, um, keep in mind that their dialogue with the Christian church over the centuries has hardened them against certain passages in the Old Testament. For example, um, no Jew today, or very few Jews today, ever think of Isaiah 53 as speaking of the Messiah. They've got a problem because... It's very difficult to see anything in that passage except the Messiah. But they've, they've evolved a method and a tradition of interpreting Isaiah 53 out of Messianic things by making Israel the suffering servant. So there's a lot of that stuff. And if you trace it historically, you will find that most of it started between 700 and 1200 A.D., that's when a lot of this stuff got started. It got started really late, actually, because the early church for the first 50 to 100 years had a lot of Jews in it. I mean, after all, it was 100% Jewish when it started. And as Gentiles came in, and that's another thing, uh, uh, Rabbi Leopold Cohn, who was the uh, founder of the American Board of Missions of Jews, once wrote a little track, and I read that track many years ago and as a new Christian. Uh, having lived around New York City, I was very conscious of a lot of Jewish friends of mine. And so when I became a Christian, I read that track, and many tracks by Leopold Cohen. And this one, I remember it was, what it has cost the church to withhold the gospel from the Jews. And his point in there was that the church really hasn't actively evangelized Jews, very well, been very poor, actually. Only in our generation, and only since about 1940, have there been serious missionary efforts at the Jewish race? Um, there's just been a series of antagonisms down through the century. Um, but Leopold Cohn argued that had the church instead evangelized the Jew in the first, second, and third centuries, it would have saved the church a lot of theological grief. Because had there been Jews in the church in those years, you'd never had all millennials in the start because the Jewish mind is always thinking in terms of the Old Testament kingdom. Uh, they would never confuse Israel with the church. So you wouldn't have that mess that you had, what we've inherited from the Reformed tradition, from Roman Catholicism. So it has cost us of not, not evangelizing the Jew and not getting interaction. Today, the most outstanding prophecy teachers are Hebrew Christians. Now, Tommy isn't Jewish, he's a Gentile, but uh, there are a number of, of great Hebrew Christians there. Yes? A what?
orthodox. That's, this is a good point that uh, Laura's bringing up, is that if you look at the actual way they study the Bible, they don't. What they do is they study their traditions of studying the Bible. And so what you have is books like the Mishnah. If you ever get in a Christian bookstore, you can old uh, any bookstore, I guess, if you ever see it, you, I mean, it's just fun to kind of get. Get hold of the Jewish Mishnah sometime. And... Um, it's about that thick. It used to come with a yellow cover on it. Dan B's translation, I guess, is the one I use. And you, you look at that, that Mishnah, and what's so neat about it is it preserves their interpretations of the Old Testament. And all I can, the thing that I have never read, had the patience to read through the thing, it's just that I've excerpted things. There's little formulas in there on how you can bake an, uh, cook an egg on the Sabbath day without cooking it. And, and this is, these are the crucial questions that concern their Bible study. Um, because of tradition, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath day. So what do you do about cooking an egg? Does that work? And so there's a discussion. I mean, our rabbis have fights over whether cooking an egg is, is to be allowed on the Sabbath day. So it's very similar to our government bureaucracy. I mean, I've often said that I, having worked in the governments for so long, I work in an environment that's very much like the Pharisees of the, of, the, of the New Testament, is that the arguments that go on behind the scenes of whether it's this regulation or whether it's that subparagraph of this one, or should we do this or should we do that, it's like a bunch of lawyers fighting each other all the time. And that's very, very Jewish. That's exactly the, the Jewish spirit, arguing and fighting over it. not the original law, but all the little interpretations that have come in for the last hundred years over that, or in their case, the last thousands of years over, this, over the text. And if, I think this, you'd see this today when you think, you know, the United States Constitution, to make an analogy, the United States Constitution was originally a pretty simple document. I mean, think about it. You can carry it around your pocket. And, and we really should as, as American citizens. I wish I could get it somewhere. There must be little paperback copies of the Constitution, like a track or something. And it would be refresh us as Americans, at least once a year, read the this, read this sucker. Because it is so obviously simple. And yet, you walk into a law library, and holy mackerel, is books and books and books about what the court said about this, and what this and that, and you begin to think, did the early fathers of our country, when they wrote this, mean all that? Are you guys kidding, or what? And there's a remarkable analogy between the Constitution of the United States and the legal profession and the Old Testament and Orthodox Judaism. Now, the Reformed Jewish people and the, the liberal Jews, they don't even bother to read this. I mean, they laugh at it. It's an ancient book to them. You know, it's just... Yeah.
Well, this is, a, this is a good question that Mike's asking about. Isn't it remarkable to see Peter's subtlety in his Acts 2, for a quote, simple businessman, and the guy that you meet the Gospels, impetuous, uh, and you don't think of him as calming down and thinking things through and coming up with this stuff, which he looks like he just came up with it on the spur of the moment. Um, and is that due to the post-Pentecostal work of the Holy Spirit? Well, let me back up and comment on this. That's an observation, Mike, that liberal higher critics use to demean the scriptures by saying that that's a reconstruction. It never, Peter never could have done that. That's the church speaking. That's the church later on putting words into Peter's mouth. And of course, as Christians, we can't buy that. We have to say that, yes, it did come out of Peter's mouth. The question is how much it came out of his brain versus how much came out of the Holy Spirit. We don't know. But it's not apparently just a peculiar thing that happened after Pentecost. And I point out, if you run in a more amazing example of that, coming out of a person you never, you never think was deeply subtle, is Mary's Magnificat. Here she is, a young teenage girl, and you read that Magnificat, and you look at the theology that little teenage girl's coming out with. Where did she learn all that stuff? Holy mackerel. Do 15-year-old Jewish girls sit down and think through covenantal theology of the messianic line? And then let's go back further. Let's go back to those Psalms of David. Where did he start thinking in terms of the crucifixion in Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have they forsaken me? And he, it's like they're transformed. The only way I can say it is that apparently when the Holy Spirit spoke to these people, there was something very profound that happened. You know, Paul said he was transformed to the third heaven. We make light of that because it seems so spooky to us in our modern milieu where these things don't happen. But Paul said he had this experience in which he thinks he might have gone to the third heaven. He wasn't sure. But he had this experience, and he said, I saw things I can't even speak of. So whatever the Holy Spirit does to the souls of these people, it's an amazing thing. And I think the lesson to learn about this uh, for all of us is that that shows you that when you read in the New Testament, be filled with the Spirit, be not drunk with wine. People often say that's an analogy that the filling of the Spirit is like, you know, you're controlled by the Spirit like you're controlled by alcohol. I don't think so. I think it's a contrast, not a comparison. So what, what, when you're controlled by alcohol, what happens to your brain? It's dulled. But when you're controlled by the Spirit, what happens to your mind? It's stimulated. And I think the Holy Spirit gives tremendous clarity and vision at times. And that's the only explanation I know, Mike, for explaining what Peter's doing here, because he challenges. I mean, look at, look at us. Theologians for 1,900 years have looked at this Acts 2 passage and said, gee, this is deep stuff, Peter. Where did you get that? So he may have surprised himself on that day. I don't know. But it is, it is, it is, Mike raised a very legitimate question here. We see profound things out of people we think are simple. And the only answer to that is that they walked so close to the Lord, the Lord was so close to them, that it's, there's a greater mind at work.
It's the only way I can explain it. And I don't think he thought through. I don't think he, some of this stuff, I don't think he did think through. And you know why you, you get this impression? Is if you read the New Testament carefully and spend a number of years reading it, and then you go to the library and you pick up the church fathers, 100 AD, 150 AD, and you start reading them. You know the impression you get is that these guys are trying to mimic the language of the New Testament, but it's like a kid that's heard his parents use words, and they try to go out and use the same word, and then they, they, you're using it funny, and you, you realize that the kid is just using the word, but he really doesn't know what the word means. That's the impression you get from the church fathers. It's like after the apostles dropped out, that these guys were trying to maintain things, but they just didn't have it. Something was lost there. And that's why as Protestants, as Protestants, Protestantism through the Reformation came to Sola Scriptura. It's not that the, we, we think that all tradition is bad. We just say, though, that what's reliable? Tradition is contaminated, and the only thing that we know that isn't contaminated is the written Word of God. So that's why we differ with our Roman Catholic friends, that they believe that the Church gave us the Bible, and the Church is the custodian of oral tradition passed down by the Apostles. And we believe, yeah, but look what happened in the period of the Reformation. You guys get all corrupted. And that was a manifestation of the weakness of your oral tradition. So the only thing that lasted was the Word of God. So we'll, we hope never to make that error again. Good point. Good point. Peter's recovery was. But I think, in answer to Mike, Mike suggested something else too when he made his question. And I, uh, now that I've had a minute or two to think about it, you said, Mike, when you asked the question, did they learn it after Pentecost, maybe from the Lord in some way? Um, a thought occurred to me: the Emmaus Road after the resurrection. But a thought occurred to me of the Emmaus Road incident. You know, you read about that Emmaus Road, here these guys are walking down the road, and Jesus explained all. He went through all the Old Testament. I mean, these guys probably took, I mean, that's a long road from Damascus. I mean, it's quick by car, but it's a long road from Jerusalem down to the coast there. And they're on that Emmaus Road walking. They took hours to walk. Well, you wonder how much Jesus Christ could teach you in about two hours. I mean, it, what, the point I would think of, putting myself in that position, that I couldn't absorb it. So it would be as, as miraculous for him to make me able to absorb the throughput. Talk about broadband communication here. Um, think of the broadband that's going on between God and a human being at that point of revelation. So there must be, there's all kinds of miraculous things. It's like 
the miracles we often think of, like uh, the, crip, the lame walk and the blind see, and medical doctors point out that there's actually more than one miracle. It's not just the muscles of these people. It's not just the eye. It's the whole brain. It's everything else that has to be coordinated. All of a sudden, these people are walking. Where do they get the coordination from? So maybe it's a similar thing that when, when they had these encounters, that somehow the reception was a thousand percent or something, so they were able to very quickly absorb it. So I don't know. <laughs> it's just really amazing. But you're right. Bottom line is, uh, to Mike's question, is uh, it's remarkable. Peter's sermon in Acts 2, it really is remarkable that that guy picked that stuff up. And remember, Luke has only given us a summary of it. The real thing was a lot longer than that. Okay, well, that's all for tonight. And uh, next week, we'll start at 4 John with uh, uh, Paul and Luke.